Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Day and welcome to Super Awesome Football Roundtable with Marie and Glenn. We're starting a little early today because there's some weather coming in. Some weather, yeah, there could be outages, guys. Also, there's another show waiting to use the studio here at Channel 191. Right, Physician Focus. No, they're Thursday after the folklore guy. I think it's the polka show today. The point is, we've got some highlights and analysis for you from last weekend. So let's just get right into it. This is from the Vikings Seahawks game. Look at that guy in the purple running with the ball. He drops it. He drops it. Now look, the guy in white is picking up the ball and running with it. Yeah, but in the exact opposite direction. Right. Well, he has to, right? The white team goes one way and the purple guys go the other way? Oh, got it. I'm like 70% sure that's the case. Now let's take a look at the Bengals-Steelers game. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, the, the, the guy in the black shirt totally crashed into the guy with the yellow pants. I know, right? Can they even do that? Ouch. Ugh, ow, 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 ow. Hurts to look at. Now it's time for predictions. The Green Bay Packers play the Arizona Cardinals. What are your thoughts, Marie? Well, the Packers have to run the ball to set up the pass. If you force the run, then you dictate the defense to be in the cover three, and then you're able to do the play-action pass, throw the post, the comebacks, the over routes. You can really control the tempo. That was amazing. Yeah, it just came out of me. I don't know where I got it. We have to stop there. I can see Stosh and Jerry waving through the glass. They want to get the polka show going. Yeah, I got to get home anyway. My Dodge Dart is so bad in the snow. I told you. Get the Durango. So until next week, remember, don't drop the football because the other guy will just pick it right up and run in the other direction. And now he was penalized for excessive celebration in the bathroom. Colin McEnroe. Guys, can you wait till we're out of the studio, please? Uh, many years ago, I don't know how many years ago, but our guest will, uh, I think, I was on a different station, and I had to prepare every day for a short conversation about sports. And I was always rummaging around for something clever to say or a new topic uh, to bring up, and I found on the ESPN website something called TMQ, Tuesday Morning Quarterback. It was written by Greg Easterbrook. Uh, it was a kind of football writing that I had never seen before because, in fact, uh, Greg Easterbrook was a name I knew from his writing about public policy in publications like The Atlantic and Washington Monthly and places like that. So I didn't expect to find him there. And then I found him combining some of the really sharp thinking that he's applied to public policy in the past to the sport of football. It was also very funny and discursive. It went off on tangents that had nothing to do with football. It had my favorite feature, was which was the obscure college score of the week. Uh, it had all kinds kinds of things in it. Maybe we can talk about the obscure college score of the week as we go on today. But anyway, it's since then moved a time or two, uh, the feature, and it's uh, currently on the New York Times website. Uh, it's a little bit different because it has to be because the New York Times is not ESPN, and maybe there's some other good reasons for that. Anyway, that's a long introduction for Greg Easterbrook. His new book is The Game's Not Over, In Defense of Football. I should say, for those of you who crave balance in all broadcasting, we already did a show with Steve Allman, who wrote Against Football. So uh, consider this to be uh, a balancing of the scales. Greg Easterbrook, welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Colin. Very nice of you to have me. So maybe the first thing to do is one of the things you attempt to do in this book is just to sort of quantify 
How big is NFL football? How pervasive is it, its reach? How large a shadow does it cast over American life? Maybe there's just a few things that you can sort of say to the untutored to give them a sense of what a behemoth this thing is. Well, sure, not just in money, $12 billion a year to the NFL, but Sunday Night Football on NBC for five years running has been the number one show on television. Not the number one sport, the number one show. Monday Night Football on ESPN for six years running has been the number one show on cable. Not the number one sport, the number one show. The 20 largest television events in history have all been Super Bowls. The numbers for attendance, not just in the NFL, but but at the high school level are way up. The, the attendance levels for college are roughly stable, but television ratings for college are way up. Americans are surrounded by football. We, we, we live in a football-soaked world at this point, um, for good or for ill. You know, there, there are interesting things to say about why we're so attracted to this, why it, more than anything else, uh, dominates in the way that you just described. A lot of those things are, in fact, sketched out uh, very amply in your book. But one suggestion is that there's something kind of atavistic about our relationship with football, that it it, it harks back to our most warlike tendencies. Um, I would argue, and maybe we can talk about this, that the obsessive fascination with the NFL draft, which got bigger ratings uh, in the first week of May last year, or this year, excuse me, than Game of Thrones. So Game of Thrones <laughs> cut was one of the big sensations of cable, but a bigger sensation of cable coverage was ESPN covering people, drafting other people, that this was no football was being played or anything like that, bigger ratings. To me, that's an atavistic connection with slavery. There's a lot of real similarities to me between those two things. But before Greg and I discuss this, let's hear George Carlin years ago, my first monologue ever, I think, on Saturday Night Live, in which he laid out a little bit of this. But you know, football uh, wants to be the national, uh, the number one sport, national pastime. And I think it already is, really, because football represents something we are. We are Europe Junior. When you get right down to it, we're Europe Junior. We play the Europe game. What was the Europe game? Let's take their land away from them. You'll be the pink in the map, we'll be the blue, and they'll be the green. Ground acquisition, and that's what football is. Football is a ground acquisition game. You knock the crap out of 11 guys and take their land away from them. Of course, we only do it 10 yards at a time. That's the way we did it with the Indians, one by little by little. First down in Ohio, Midwest to go. Uh, I, I think it's not surprising that, uh, that football buys and uh, tries. Let's put it this way. There are things about the words surrounding football and baseball which give it all away. Football is technological. Baseball is pastoral. <laughs> football is technological. Baseball is pastoral. He goes on to, to lay out a whole bunch of other uh, differences in vocabulary. Uh, Greg Easterbrook, in your book, The Game's Not Over, you say he's really spot on with a lot of his points. Yes. Uh, I start the second chapter of The Game's Not Over with that Carlin monologue, which was the, the very first monologue in the very first edition of Saturday Night Live. And no coincidence, it happened in 1975. What What else was going on at that time? The Vietnam War was just winding down. America had developed a very complex attitude toward its military. Didn't know what We didn't know what to think of our military. We didn't know how to use it. We didn't know whether to love them or hate them or both. We were looking for something that would play the role of a military organization in American culture, 
but without the terrible life and death questions that are involved in the use of armed force. And along came football. Football, of course, we, Americans have been playing football since the late 19th century. It had been popular before World War II. But at World War II came along, the big expansion of the public university system, got colleges into playing football on a major level, became much more popular. The professional game started becoming popular about the time that Carlin did that monologue. And there were many things happening. But one of the things that was happening was that the sentiment that America previously attached to military organizations got transferred to football, which is military light. The coaches are like generals. The players say yes or no, sir. You're trying to acquire the other. You're trying to acquire the opposition's territory, but without the terrible life or death ethical conundrums that the military has. And for the most part, you know, war is often a subject which divides our country. Um, and football, in a way, is a unifier about the similar kind of aggression, right? I mean, I, I tend to be the kind of person who objects to and opposes military interventions. I think they're more often a bad idea than a good idea. I certainly didn't want to go uh, into Iraq in 2003. But regardless of my political leanings, uh, I'm a rabid Green Bay Packers fan. I'm in favor of aggression against the Minnesota Vikings, right? So this this is a way in which some of our ideological uh, viewpoints, we kind of set them aside on Sundays. Well, football is a wonderful artificial universe. It's a way, it's something you can get wrapped up in and release your emotions through where it doesn't make any difference what happens. You may want the Packers to beat the Vikings, but if the Vikings win, so what? No harm is done. Whereas all these terrible life or death decisions about fighting in the Middle East, uh, fighting in Afghanistan, the, 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 these are ethically fraught questions. They're unpleasant to discuss with anybody. Any family gathering, a group of friends together, you start arguing about whether we should be dropping bombs in Syria or not, it's going to turn unpleasant soon. You start arguing about whether the Giants or the Cowboys are better. Who cares who wins that argument? It doesn't matter. And I think that's one of the roles that football plays. It's, it's an emotional release valve in American life. Some people get too wrapped up in it. That's obviously true. But, but in general, it's good for you for emotional release. I can't believe you just said that thing about if the Vikings win, so so what? What are you, crazy? So, you know, although the game, the book's called The Game's Not Over in Defense of Football, at times, Greg Easterbrook, it seems like you're making the opposite argument that, uh, in fact, that the NFL is the great Satan, and not because they uh, uh, discipline Jerry Harrison, but because, in fact, they're just, they have such a stranglehold over everything that would ordinarily regulate a business, such a stranglehold o over the media, and at times, um, such a situational view of morals and ethics. I mean, let's talk about some of the critiques, many of which you join in enthusiastically. We could pick almost anything, but maybe we can begin by saying that you know, you're somebody who's worked in the media that tries to cover the NFL. One of the difficulties that we see is that the NFL is really, really good at controlling, or has been very, very good at controlling the coverage it gets. Uh, and you document this pretty well. What are some examples of that? Well, all of the major networks now have a financial interest in promoting football and, and turning away from its faults and its, subs, its subsidies. Fox, CBS, ABC, NBC, ESPN, they all have a financial interest in the NFL being successful, and most of them have a financial interest in NCAA football being successful. Do they all have a financial interest in not covering and not writing about 
the ethical and and taxpayer objections to football, but it's not just them. If you look at the corporate connections, Time Warner, Yahoo, Google, there's there's a, there's a chapter where I go through all of them. A lot of them have financial stakes in the success of football that you don't necessarily see. And so the result is that there's only a small, relatively small number of news organizations that the NFL can't put the touch on. And the NFL puts the touch on news organizations all the time. The NFL can't touch NPR because you don't have a contract to broadcast their games. The NFL can't touch the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, the New Yorker, and I think I just got to the end of the list. So one reason the coverage is so manipulated to so incredibly glorify the NFL and to make small of the things about it that have to be fixed, my mixed position on this is that I love the sport, but I want it reformed, is because the corporate connections and the the, the share of, excuse me, I left out AT&T. That's another one that now has a corporate stake in the NFL. All these big corporations derive part of their revenue from people not knowing about the objections to what's wrong with football. Um, one of the really interesting and remarkable um, instances of this or maybe it's unremarkable, but it was interesting to me anyway, and you mentioned it in the book. So for a while, for a brief while, ESPN had a, a feature show, a drama, basically a primetime drama called Playmakers. It was set, uh, it covered uh, the fortunes and misfortunes uh, of mythical, fictional NFL football players. And, you know, in, in the way that dramatizations can often bring home something even more deeply than news coverage, I found myself watching this thing and thinking, wow, I'd never really thought about that particular thing. I remember in particular, an episode in which it chronicled the struggles of linemen, particularly defensive linemen, to get to a certain weight, a weight that was, you know, as you say in the book, uh, you know, if you go back far enough, uh, a guy who was 265 pounds was a giant lineman. Now he's kind of, you know, undersized. So, but it, 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 chronicled the incredible risk of type 2 diabetes, which I never thought about before for these guys who do seem incredibly huge. They're, they're nose tackles. They're you know, guys who, who plug uh, gaps in the offensive line. Uh, there must be incredible health risks associated with trying to stay that large so you don't get cut or benched. I never thought about that before, and apparently the NFL wasn't really happy to have people like me thinking about stuff like that. Well, and I'll give you an example on that subject. The Miami Dolphins 1972 sole perfect team in NFL annals. There's no one on that team who weighed more than 300 pounds. The New England Patriots, who just won the Super Bowl in, in, in 2015, had 14 players who weighed more than 300 pounds. And yeah, maybe that's partly a reflection of the growing national waistline. But it's not the NFL players we should care about, although we, we don't want an NFL player to have experience health problems. It's that there are thousands and thousands of high school boys who are imitating that. A lot of a, a lot of high school offensive linemen now weigh 250 to 300 pounds. The heaviest offensive lineman on the 1972 Dolphins perfect team weighed 260 pounds. You can find entire high schools where everyone on the offensive line weighs more than 260 pounds. And they're setting themselves up for a lifetime of metabolic syndrome and other health problems that are related to weight gain early in life. Why, by the same token, they're almost certain not to get a recruiting boost to college. So the NFL's response to uh, ESPN's dramatization of this was not to do anything about it except to get that show canceled, right? 
Oh, yes, the NFL pressured. Uh, officially, ESPN will say, oh, we decided the show wasn't right for us. But the reality is that they were pressured to cancel it. And I think in, in, in this last year, ESPN has some financial problems. Maybe it had to retrench, but also let go by not renewing contracts. Keith Olbermann, Bill Simmons, and me, the three strongest voices at ESPN, questioning NFL priorities. And if you think those that that was a, just a pure coincidence, uh, you haven't been paying attention to the news. So there's a, that kind of sense. You know, you're, we're going to talk uh, later about you being a voice crying for reform. But in terms of getting reform, I mean, the NFL, in your book, they often seem like one of these giant, horrible, serpentine uh, conspiracy corporations that you see in highly paranoid novels and movies like The Parallax View, where they can get to anybody. So, for example, if you're looking for a, a report, a hard-nosed, no-nonsense report on the Ray Rice incident in which he uh, roundhouse uh, knocked cold his fiance. Why not hire the former director of the FBI, Robert Mueller? There's somebody who's a former director of the FBI. No way you're going to get to him, right? Wrong, says Greg Easterbrook. Well, I think the, the, the NFL does, as I said, put the touch on lots of institutions in American life. It It, it has... A lot of state legislatures eating out of its hands because it's in general state legislatures or county legislatures that provide the subsidies to the stadiums. The NFL can't do anything about the New York Times, NPR, the Atlantic Monthly, a small number of news organizations that don't partner with the NFL can say whatever they want. And and everybody else is, in some cases, quite literally in their pay. So with, with that one, okay, so you, you have this Ray Rice situation. It turns out there's video uh, of this incredibly violent incident. There are questions about when the FBI, when the NFL's com- commissioner, Roger Goodell, what did he know about this? What did he know about the tape in his uh, initial kind of wrist-slappy disciplinary decision? Did he have the full amount of knowledge about this? So those were the things that were important to know, if I understand the situation correctly. And what you say in the book is that he basically arranged for a report to be made that would exonerate him. Yeah, yes. The, 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 the former FBI, Robert Mueller, former FBI director's report on the subject was, was a prearranged whitewash. I mean, it was something that the NFL purchased and they got exactly what they wanted. Now, does that does, does that mean that the Ray Rice controversy was put into perspective? You can argue that it, that it was not. As a, as a personal failing, Ray Rice did something terribly wrong. His then fiance, now wife, Janae Palmer, Palmer, has always said that she made a bona fide decision to forgive him. And isn't that her choice? If she knew what he'd done and still wanted to get married to him, uh, I don't, I respect that choice. So the, the sense that, that Rice is a first time offender whose victim had given him a bona fide writ of forgiveness, the, the sense that Rice belongs in jail, I've always thought was wrong. But the sense that the NFL should have felt ashamed about its handling of the experience. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. He probably belongs in jail, too. I mean, the fact that somebody forgives you for a crime doesn't make it not a crime. Um, well, no, he was never, no, I, I disagree with you there. It's not what you're accused of, it's what you're convicted of. He was never convicted of anything. He was a first-time offender. He entered a pretrial di- diversion program. The fact that you're accused does not mean you're guilty. Um, I, th- I think we, we should make that distinction very clearly. Uh, yes, uh, okay, I'll go along with that. So uh, another um, argument you make for a kind of moral bank. Well, first of all, let's let's stop here with the Goodell thing because I think you make a really 
really interesting point. So on the one hand, we can say, well, Goodell may have arranged to have his knowledge and his depth of knowledge of the situation whitewashed a little bit by Robert Mueller. But another point you make in the book is that that Goodell in some ways is a fake symbol of the NFL. I think you call him a water boy, that in a way he's the guy who out there with, despite his $35 million a year salary or whatever it is, he's the guy out there that, that you can throw spitballs at. He's not really the guy rubbing his hands together and going, blah, ha, 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 ha. that's somebody else. Oh, yeah, that, 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 that somebody else is the owners. The line that I use about, about Roger Goodell is that he's an intern who earns $35 million a year. The owners have all the power. Goodell's role is to draw the flack away from them, and he performs that role pretty well. Well, as a Green Bay Packers fan, I feel obliged to point out with great glee the part in your book in which you talk about the complete lack of transparency that, that we know this is an incredibly profitable enterprise that running that the NFL, despite its, the fact that it's inexplicably a nonprofit uh, or not for profit or that is tax exempt, is unbelievably profitable. But very little is known about it um, except for Green Bay. Uh, we can say why that is in a second. But I mean, what don't we know about the money the NFL makes? Well, practically anything other than Green Bay. The Packers are the only publicly held franchise in the NFL. As such, they disclose their financials. And everything that we th- that we project about the rest of the NFL is based on taking Green Bay Packers numbers and multiplying by 32. Uh, I estimate it's roughly a billion dollars a year in public direct subsidies to the NFL, indirect subsidies in terms of tax favors, and the NFL's antitrust waiver, almost invaluable or much higher amount. Imagine what Microsoft would pay at an auction to purchase an antitrust waiver. The NFL already has one. Uh, The other, besides the Packers, who do disclose everything, and kudos to them, the other 31 franchises all receive public subsidies, and yet they don't disclose their financials. Imagine if Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman refused to disclose their financials. How would we feel about that? That's the situation that the NFL franchises are in. All right, we're going to grab a quick break. We're talking to Greg Easterbrook. His book is The Game's Not Over. Uh, towards the end of the show, I, I actually want, to, want us both to talk about things that we uh, love about football and things uh, that make football fun to watch. Uh, but we have to get through some of this hard stuff first before we eat our dessert. The book's The Game's Not Over in defense of football. We'll take a break. We'll come back. When I feel that chill, smell that fresh cut grass. I'm back in my helmet, cleats, and shoulder pads. Standing in the huddle, listening to the call. Fans going crazy for the boys of fall. We're back with Greg Easterbrook. His name, his book is The Game's Not Over in Defense of Football. As I said at the beginning of the show, he kind of has two lives. Uh, He's been a very provocative football writer, uh, but he's also, well before that, been somebody who writes a lot about public policy for magazines like The Atlantic and Washington Monthly and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I think the biggest challenge—I mean, the football has has faced various challenges in terms of the way that it's understood and identified by the American public. None of those challenges, I guess, have really made much of a dent in football for all of the reasons that you said in the first segment. It's still an unbelievably popular, kind of more popular than anything else phenomenon in in this country. Uh, But probably it's faced its biggest challenge with the concussion crisis. We've got uh, a movie coming out with—well, it hasn't come here yet. I guess it's out 
in other markets. Will Smith plays Bennett Omalu, uh, the forensic pathologist who uh, made some of the first inroads in understanding the degree of the problem of chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy. Um, we've had the Frontline special that I think really laid this out in, in incredibly stark and upsetting details, um, including the NFL's attempts to suppress some of the research and intimidate some of the researchers. So for you, Greg Easterbrook, is that issue, that issue of long-term brain damage, not only for NFL players, but players down in the amateur ranks, is that the biggest hurdle you've got to jump over to maintain your love for this game? Uh, neurological damage is by far the biggest concern. It doesn't affect my love for the NFL and for this reason. There's there's only 2,000 active NFL players. Nobody wants any of them to get hurt. But their chance is about one in eight in any given year of sustaining a concussion. So most NFL players don't get concussions. Uh, they're grown men who make a free will choice. They've been warned of risks. They're very well compensated in money in terms of lifestyle for the risks they take on. I think you and, and any of your listeners should watch watch or attend NFL games without feeling any ethical qualms. There's, there's no reason to feel those about the professional level of the sport. When you drop down one level to college... Boy, there's an awful lot of guys in college who are cutting class and and practicing and lifting weights the whole time because they think they're going to go into the NFL and they're not. At the at the Division One college level, only 55% of players get their degrees. That should scandalize people. Drop down one to the high school level, and there you've got a real problem. High school and youth. 200,000 concussions per year. That's a 1,000 concussions at the happening to children. People are legally or children below the age of 18 for every one that happens to an NFL player. The concussion crisis is not in the NFL. That's at the top of the sport. That's what the movie Concussion is about. I haven't seen it yet. I'm sure it's a worthy movie. But it, it's focusing on the glamour, big money level of the sport. What we really should focus our concern is on the high school and youth level because that's where the harm is being done. And it's in almost every case being done to, to kids who will, will never get a recruiting boost to college out of football. Let me push back a, a little against that. Uh, and what I'll do is just use stuff that I read in a book called The Game's Not Over by Greg Easterbrook. So one of the things that you point out is the kind of lifetime health coverage that would seem to be warranted for people who are having just incredibly high-speed collisions with some of the most muscular, fast, strong, powerful, and heavy people in the world, their fellow NFL players. I mean, you know, for if you or I had one of these collisions, we wouldn't go to work for another year. Um, that... That that kind of um, job would seem to warrant some kind of lifetime umbrella of health coverage, as you point in the bo- out in the book, eligibility for that begins after four years. The average playing life of an NFL player is not insignificantly three point seven years. That you know that should trouble me. That should trouble me as an NFL fan. Well, yes, I, and I think you're right about that. Uh, the The reason that the average career is 3.7 years is that you don't know who's covering punts for the Green Bay Packers. You love the Green Bay Packers. How many of their backup offensive linemen can you name All of them. right now? You can actually name them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, well, that's good for you. But most, most fans can't name most players on the field. They can only name the stars. And as soon as the players that fans can't name reach the end of the third year, they're waived and replaced with a guy who doesn't qualify, who doesn't vest for, for health care 
pension. So certainly that it would be good if that changed. Yeah. It's Josh Walker, Lane Taylor, and J.C. Treader. I have a real problem. I mean, I could name the entire 53-man roster of the Packers. Well, then you That's do have a real problem. I I'm do. Sorry. I do have an extreme problem, I, I, and, I, and I need help. So um, – you know, uh, what are the other things that you point out? Actually, since we're talking about the Packers, one of the things that you point out a little bit more humorously, a little less direly than the conversation that we've been having so far here um, is the the sorry state of football announcing uh, that, you know, here it is, the most watched pastime. It is, you know, 20 of the last uh, 20 most popular, most watched TV shows are NFL football games. You'd think the people who are talking about them would be really interesting uh, to listen to, uh, would say really fascinating things um, and would not say stupid things at an impressive moments. So uh, I think, uh, Greg, that you would agree that um, last Thursday's Packers-Lions game, although it may not have been an incredibly well-played game, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. In terms of the payoff, in terms of the ending, boy, it's really why people watch football games. It even violates uh, one of Greg Easterbrook's um, immutable laws of football. It doesn't violate it. It amplifies it. Amplifies it. The law of the double negative, double knots, excuse me, never, never celebrate until the clock shows zero, zero. Well, in this game, the clock was showing zero, zero. The game should have been over, but there was a penalty so that Aaron Rodgers had one last chance to throw a long, long, heave, the proverbial Hail Mary into the end zone. Let's hear how Jim, and listen to the interjection. I want to tell you that when you hear Jim Nance saying this thing, the ball is in the air. The receivers are waiting in the end zone. Listen to what he says. Rodgers in trouble. It's going to get there. He turned 32 yesterday. Does he have a vintage moment in him? In the end zone! It is caught for the win! Richard Rodgers with a walk-off touchdown, a game-ender for the Packers. So the ball has been heaved up there and it's in the air. He turned 32 yesterday. Does he have a vintage moment? <laughs> Why in the world would you be saying that at that moment? Uh, I, 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 I think in general you're much better off listening to NFL games on the radio than you are listening to television announcers. The, the, the radio guys have to be able to paint a picture with words, and more important, they have to actually watch the game. And remember, in most cases, the television announcers are not watching the game. They're looking at the monitor to see what the replays are, and a spotter is whispering into their earpieces who did what. And they constantly seem surprised by what's happening on the field because they're not watching what's happening on the field. Uh, I, I would advise you, if you can, to listen to games on the radio, not to the television announcers, or simply, I often, I find it heightens my appreciation of football to simply turn on off the announcers when I'm watching on TV, to just watch the game and not listen to the numbing patter and, and the references to celebrities and what's coming up at 11 o'clock and all that stuff. Turn off the announcers and experience the game as you would experience it if you were sitting in the stadium. I must say that uh, your book, The Game's Not Over, it really includes in it a lot of stuff that uh, would be helpful to a person trying to understand the game uh, better. I watch a lot of football, although it's mainly Packers football. There were all kinds of things in there that I hadn't thought about, I didn't know about, uh, ways in which statistically uh, the conventional wisdom uh, is not always borne out. It's it's really uh, terrific. And it's kind of, you realize how much dumb stuff you hear announcers say. And one of the things that you say announcers say all the time is that somebody was 
is open. Usually they're not really open. Although I have to say that Troy Aikman says the op- opposite thing. No matter what the coverage was, he goes, there was actually pretty good coverage on that play. Uh, it's always after a completion. He goes, well, you know, there was pretty good coverage. It, the, the, the cornerback could be you know, have been whipped around and be you know, 12 yards away from the receiver. And Troy Aikman will always say, there was pretty good coverage on that play. So you don't really learn anything from them. Well, they all they all have their verbal tics, and and in general, I think just avoid them, turn them off, or listen listen to the radio call. The radio callers, the guys who do play by play on the radio as a group, are much more skilled than the guys who do it on television for ten times as much money. So, one of the things that you've written about for a long time, and it's now coming to vote. We're we're going to go away at least temporarily to some of the moral and societal critiques of the NFL, although we may come back to them at some point. And we'll talk a little bit more, but just about the fun of watching the game and knowing a little bit more about it. So, you've written about this a lot, I think even prior to its fashionability, it became even more fashionable when it surfaced that a guy named Kevin Kelly, who was coaching a high school team down in Arkansas, um, had a high school team that essentially never punts, or they punt once a season or twice a season, and, and they go for it on fourth down all the time. They, they do a lot of onside kicks when they have to do onside kicks. They don't really do kickoffs. They do all kinds of things that NFL coaches really would be very nervous about doing, and they have incredible success despite the fact that there are a lot of things about the composition of Kevin Kelly's teams that would militate against success in a football competitive state uh, like Arkansas. So, But you know, maybe the biggest thing is that whole idea of going for it on fourth down. I'm pretty sure I read about that in your column, TMQ, long before I read about Kevin Kelly. This is something you've been saying for a long time, that usually if the defense, if the offense stays on the field for the fourth down instead of bringing the punting unit in, the defense is worried and nervous and unhappy. Yes. When, 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 if, if, the, if your opponent is happy to see your punting team come on the field, that means you shouldn't be punting. Kevin Kelly's a, a fine guy, and I will tell you I take credit for calling – being the first one to call national attention to him, and don't take my word for it, call him up and ask him. I started writing about 10 years ago about how, both in terms of game management and mathematically, you should almost never punt on fourth and short. And I had had the math on that, including with computer simulations on ESPN, beginning, I think, in 06 or 07, one of those years. And I, I then got a call from a guy who was a high school referee in Arkansas, and he said, I just went to a game I just I just worked a game of Pulaski Academy, which is Kevin Kelly's high school, where they never punted. They even went for it on fourth and long. So I, I then called Kevin Kelly up and started talking to him about his theories about not punting, and they're all very sound. His, main, his most important contention is that in football, possession of the ball is far more valuable than field position. And when you punt, you're giving up possession in order to improve your field position. You're much better off trying to trying to keep the ball by going for it on fourth down, even though inevitably some of your fourth down tries will fail. And I then I then had a company called AccuScore run computer simulations of that. And sure enough, it turned, to be, turned out to be right, that if you always went for it on fourth and short, even though some of those attempts would fail, you would end up scoring more points and your opponent would end up scoring less because you'd maintain possession of the ball. But NFL coaches don't want to do that because they don't want to be blamed. And I'll give you an example. Two, two weeks ago on Monday Night Football, the Buffalo Bills were at the New England Patriots. The Patriots led by 10 points with nine minutes to go in the game. The Bills had fourth and inches at midfield and punted. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to win that game, you had to go for it at that point. Rex Ryan didn't want to be blamed for making the decision that could backfire. If he punted and then the team lost, the players would be blamed, which is what happened the next day. And that's a dynamic that extends all throughout the football universe. 
Um, yes, yeah, so the socioeconomic downside for a coach who makes that decision, even though it makes statistical sense, is so big that he can't do the thing that statistically makes sense. So one of the really interesting arguments you make in the book, uh, this once again has to do with watching and enjoying football as opposed to either decrying or not decrying its existence, is don't watch the offense so much. Look at the defense. Explain what you mean. Well, my— Ninety percent of what's important about football happens away from the ball, and we're all trained from the way football is broadcast on television. It is a, it is obviously it's a good television sport, but television focuses on the ball. There's this little te- tetragon about, around the ball, and you see that, and you don't say anything else. If you go, and, and you sort of have to watch the ball when you watch on television because that's what the screen is showing. But if you intend, if you attend a game, don't look at the ball. Look at the defense. As the defense is lining up, locate and count the safeties, which is what the quarterback is doing as he begins his cadence. What happens next will mean a lot more to you. It will soon become clear to you why things are happening the way they are. Knowing where the defense is tells you what's going to happen. Essentially, the the, the, the defense. The, the saying among coaches is that the defense calls the plays. In in most cases, the offense is reacting to where the defense is lined up. And if you're looking at the defense, especially looking at the safeties you will have a much better grasp of what happens next than if you just look at the expression on the quarterback's face, which is what television is endlessly showing you. Um, let's uh, do one more sort of Easterbrookism or Easterbrook uh, law, uh, and that is that blitzes are kind of overrated. Now, we should actually quickly explain. So a blitz is when uh, the defense rushes at the quarterback. I'm doing this for people that don't watch a lot of football. Rushes at the quarterback instead of the typical four, more than four people. That somebody who ordinarily might be dropping back in coverage or staying back to cover various kinds of runs instead runs right at the quarterback. And so blitzes are talked about a lot as a pretty innovative and effective strategy. You say maybe not so much. Uh, Yes. Anytime you rush more than four guys, you're blitzing. Good quarterbacks want to be blitzed. If you asked Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady what his ideal defense would play, would say, say, oh, please, all-out blitz. Give me an all-out blitz on every play, and I'll be the happiest quarterback in in the league. I actually actually think my TMQ column when it was on ESPN played some small role in changing the psychology of this about 10 years ago. The, the NFL percentage of blitzing was about 35% of downs had a blitz on them. And I started charting for two consecutive years on ESPN. I charted the results of every blitz play, not during the regular season. There's 256 regular season games. But but on one round of the playoffs each year, so there's four playoffs game, playoff games per weekend during the playoffs, four was enough that I was willing to chart them. And I showed with statistics that when the defense blitzed, both the average gain and the median gain of the offense increased, you were much more likely to give up a touchdown when you were blitzing than when you were playing straight defense. And I have heard from guys in the league that those columns were influential, and the percentage of blitzing this year is down to about 20%, which is probably about right. All right. Uh, We're talking to Greg Easterbrook. We have one more uh, segment with him. The uh, book's called The Game's Not Over in Defense of Football. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. The clock's running down. The team's losing ground to the opposing defense. The young quarterback waits for the snap when suddenly starts to make sense he's got all kinds of time he's got all kinds of time all kinds of time he's got all kinds of time 
follow football so I thought the icky shuffle was actually you probably don't want to know what I thought that was today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe and me Kyone Wolf Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin our intern is Tiana Duquette the part of Bill Curry was played by Joe Theismann for show pages articles and video of the here and now staff discussing gap responsibility and the red light 30 poll trap visit our website WNPR.org slash Colin on tomorrow's show the world of the con artist and now, back to Colin. We're back with Greg Easterbrook, author of The Game's Not Over, In Defense of Football. His Tuesday morning quarterback, TMQ, a column has been a staple uh, of reading for people who really enjoy studying the game and having a little bit of fun with the game. Let me ask you about something that you used to do that I'm pretty sure you no longer do, probably because of the change in venue from ESPN to, to other publications, now the New York Times, but maybe also because involve, of evolving considerations. So you used to enjoy featuring, shall we say, extremely hot cheerleaders. Uh, I think there was usually kind of a cheerleader of the week or something like that. Now, cheerleaders in the NFL have become, in, the, in and of themselves, a little bit more controversial these days. So uh, do you have a different view of, of the role of the cheerleader? Well, the reason I had it in ESPN and I stopped uh, on the TMQ version on ESPN, I stopped doing cheerleader items. Oh, geez, four or five years ago was that roughly a decade ago, when the the Philadelphia Eagles started putting cheerleader lingerie calendars on the web, and and the Broncos, the Dolphins, the Cowboys, others had cheerleader swimsuit pictures all over their websites. As I kind of looked at this as here's this this thing that's America's sport that's so macho and and so conservative politically, or at least appears to be conservative politically, and yet they're also promoting softcore porn. I thought that was interesting. Besides just that cheerleaders, are, you know, you're supposed to look at the cheerleaders, and they were they were attractive. So I started calling people's attention to this. Now I feel like a everybody knows that, so there's no novelty value anymore. And secondly, now that people understand, in part because I've reported on it, and in part because the New York Times has reported on it, that the cheerleaders are exploited not not in terms of showing skin, but they're exploited financially. The the most NFL cheerleaders are in the equivalent of $2 an hour. They're taken advantage of. That, that sort of takes the fun of the dancing girl aspect away, knowing that they're exploited. If they were properly paid, it would be a different situation. You know, you look at something like that, and so many of the other things that we've talked about, and, and you know, you can add to it, and once again, I'm relying on y- your book, the notion of an institution so morally bankrupt that, that at a time when our college campuses are, are debating whether or not to keep Woodrow Wilson's name on buildings, this is an, uh, an institution that's incapable of reconsidering the legacy of O.J. Simpson. As you point out in your book, he is still venerated uh, in the Hall of Fame exactly the way that he always was. You look at stuff like that or the bullying scandal of the Miami Dolphins, which you uh, write about in your book, or any of the other things we've talked about. And one could make the argument, this is an institution whose values are so far out of sync with either our own values or what we really think our values should be. It's just so far away from our highest aspirations in terms of its sexism, its 
casualness about violence, its its indifference to moral concerns, its bullying of the media, its milking of the taxpayers for subsidies, another uh, uh, issue that you cover very well in this book, that we just should, we shouldn't. We should look at it really as more of a disease in our midst than one of our finest attributes. How do you answer that? Well, I think it's clear that some people feel that way. Um, I can tell you that this is a name-dropping anecdote where I can't drop the complete name, but I, w- I was at a Washington reception a short time ago where I was talking to someone. I'll just say, let's just say one of the most powerful people in the world. And she said, "Is fo- I love to watch the NFL on television. Should I stop? Is it a guilty pleasure? By watching the NFL... Am I enabling something that's bad for society? And my book, The Game's Not Over, is in, in, is in large part, and it was inspired by that. It, the book is actually designed as an answer to that question. And, and the answer is that, no, you shouldn't stop watching. The game itself is really good. What you should do is support reforms on health public subsidies and a range of other matters. But certainly, you, it's certainly true that the NFL and NCAA, big college football, both have never voluntarily reformed themselves. The only time they've ever reformed is when they've been forced to. And the only way to get the next round of needed reforms is to force those institutions to change because they will never change voluntarily. Right. Although it feels as though in the book you're describing an institution that is so able to resist change. It's so powerful. It's so big that it's the least likely. What incentive does it have to be better than it is? Well, right now, none. Congress has to act, right? Congress holds the trump card on all this. In a few cases, state legislatures hold the trump card. But Congress clearly holds the tr- not just the trump card, the entire trump suite in this in this category, and Congress won't use it. If Congress threatened to use its trump cards, the, the NFL would pay attention. Well, I mean, given that, though, okay, so given that, Congress has the, the tr- holds the trump card. On the other hand, Congress, as was observed, well, actually, I should say we're recording this for later use, but on the day that we're talking about this, the previous night, the president observed that Congress can't even pass a law that says that people on terrorist no-fly lists can't buy guns, that Congress is so deadlocked and intractable on issues that really do directly uh, affect public safety and, and seem like common sense issues. How likely is it that Congress can override one? Once again, the tremendous power of the NFL. Oh, Congress is deeply screwed up, and both parties in Congress are deeply screwed up. But that's a critique of Congress, not of not of the NFL. The NFL will keep taking advantage of the situation until Congress gets its act together. And I, and I put that at the feet of Congress. I mean, it seems as though one of the great symbols of of the inability to do anything about that would be the name of the team in that city itself, right? I mean, you've got a lot of people who are part of the permanent government of Washington, D.C. Maybe they were former members of Congress and they're lobbyists or consultants now or they're defense contractors. Who knows what they are? They all have Redskins tickets. Uh, <laughs> and here's a team with, once again, you know, you sort of think about the debates that are going on on college campuses right now, some of which strike me as slightly overweening. On the other hand, the notion of something that big, an NFL franchise called the Washington Redskins, I don't know. What's your take on that? Well, it's not just an NFL franchise. It's the franchise that plays at our nation's capital. And it plays in a publicly subsidized stadium. And it calls itself by an offensive name. And on national television from the nation's capital in the subsidized stadium, people sing hail to the Redskins. There's just no chance at all that the NFL will ever volunteer.
voluntarily change that. It must be forced to change. You know, but, you know, just to sort of go Walt Kelly for a second, in some way, I, I suppose you could say we've met the enemy and he is us, right? That, that you know, I mean, one of the sort of um, one of the pivotal events in your book is the so-called Heidi game. This goes way, way back uh, to a, a game that was interrupted at the end by a broadcast of Heidi. And the world went nuts and maybe nuts in a way that, you know, would go even nutsier now when in, the, in an age of social media. And people maybe understood for the first time how incredibly addicted people are to football, how unbelievably outraged they are when they don't get what they want, that ultimately are craving for whatever it is that we're getting out of this, for the releases of dopamine and serotonin and all kinds of other brain chemicals are so big that we're probably not going to ask rational questions. The precedent set by the Heidi game, which was in 1968, was that nothing is more important than football. You don't break away from a football game for anything. The Germans could be invading Belgium again, and we would not break away to cover that story if it interrupted a football game. And I must say, as a viewer, I'm totally okay with that premise. Let's talk about sort of what it is that you do love. We just have a few minutes left. We're talking to Greg Easterbrook, um, author of The Game's Not Over, in defense of football. So, I mean, to me... Obviously, I have my misgivings and my ambivalences, but they are easily overridden. Uh, to me, that game where we just played the clip from a little while ago, that Thursday night game with the Packers and the Lions, which could end so incredibly. I mean, kind of a uh, an arguable face mask call. And then this pass with no time, time run out on the clock, this Hail Mary pass into the end zone. The idea that this game in which the Packers had trailed by as many as 20 to nothing, that it could end with the Packer victory. I mean, how can you not love that? Is that one of the things? that you love about football, or do you love it at a more granular level? Well, sure. The, the, that, the Packers-Lions game that you talk about, if you didn't like that game, then you don't like sports. It was a fabulous game. In general, the game itself, once you get it played, the quality of play has never been better. That's true of the pro, college, and high school level. The general trend of the last generation to emphasizing offense over defense. Yes, I know some purists prefer defense, but offense is just fundamentally more interesting than defense is. The game has gotten more interesting as scores have risen. The game itself, the quality has never been better. And it's a game that represents the United States. What is football? It's too big. It's too loud. It's too powerful. It's too expensive. I've just described the United States. That's why it's the American national sport. It's an athletic expression of what we are as a nation. It's also the most fascinating game tactically. Football's a living chessboard. There's more talk about tactics in football than in any other sport. I find that interesting, and it looks like tens of millions of other people find that interesting. That sounds like a good place for us to end, Greg. Easterbrook. Uh, the book is The Game's Not Over in Defense of Football. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Colin. Well, the Rams are moving to Los Angeles. What should we call them? The L.A. Earthquakes? Mm, no. The L.A. Wildfires? N- no. The L.A. Priuses? Pre-I? Pre-M? Let's just stick with the L.A. Rams. <laughs> 